The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing and turn your scriptures to Matthew in chapter 23, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, the first 12 verses. You'll find that on page 828 of your Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 23. We'll be reading the first 12 verses. This is the prelude uh, to all the woes that we find in the rest of uh, chapter 23. So this is God's word, Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Thanks be to our God for his word. Let's pray. Father, open now your word to us, that we may hear the warnings and encouragements, and strive, Lord God, to be found in Christ, striving for true heart, religion, sincere, worshipping you in spirit and in truth. Equip us, Lord God, to know the dangers that our Lord will now speak to us of, and may we flee from them, for we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, perhaps you noticed that our Lord's debates with the Jewish leaders have now finished. He's done with them. They've gone their own way. He now turns his attention to the disciples and the crowds that are with him in the outer courts of the temple. The time for debate has passed and the time for judgment is present. That's what chapter 23 is about. If you read the whole chapter, it's a tour de force of warning and judgment. Judgment on those who are no longer part of the audience. The time for the Lord to speak with them has passed. They've missed their opportunity, at least for now. The warnings here to the disciples and to the crowds is to avoid the sinful traits and behaviors of their own religious leaders. The warning from Christ is to flee from hypocrisy, from the empty shell of religion that belonged to the scribes and the Pharisees, because their hypocrisy, as we'll see in a moment, condemned them to hell. 
And Jesus would not have that for his disciples or the crowds, nor would he have it for you if you have ears to hear. What does this text teach us? It teaches us this. True and sincere faith holds fast to the very substance of our faith, Jesus Christ. True and sincere faith holds fast to the very substance of our faith and religion, that is, Jesus himself. And as a consequence, possessing that true and sincere faith, the Christian will then abase himself in humility and in service. So there's a doctrinal element, if you will, and our Lord builds on that doctrinal element with practical exhortation. Be the least in the kingdom. Be a servant in the kingdom. And he lays out this teaching before us in three sections in the verses before us. The first three verses constitute a warning to the crowds and disciples, a warning to the crowds. He then tells them in verses 3 to 7, the second part of verse 3, what they're to flee from, what the warning is about. It's about the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally then, in verses 8 to 12, he reminds them of the mind that they are to have, the kingdom mind. This won't be news news to us because we've seen him speaking of it in the last three or four chapters over and over. The last shall be first. Make yourself a servant, the mind of the kingdom. First of all, there's a warning, a staggering warning, if we think about it. Remember, as we think of the context, uh, the Jewish leaders have been bringing challenge after challenge after challenge to Christ, challenge about his person, challenge about his work, challenge about his ministry and his teaching. In other words, they denied he's the Messiah, and every challenge flowed from that. He, in turn, challenged them, and uh, one by one, they left him speechless. They could not answer him. And so now, chapter 23, verse 1, our Lord turns his attention to whom? We read, to the crowds and to his disciples. The time for debate with the Jewish leaders has ended. He's now going to spend the rest of chapter 23, a long chapter, pouring out woe after woe. In fact, seven woes perfect judgment on the Jewish leaders, on those hypocrites who should have known him and received him but did not. Complete condemnation he pronounces on the Jewish leaders. And where does he do it? He does it in the temple precincts, the outer courts. Because we know chapter 24, verse 1, what does he do? He leaves the temple for the last time. As it were, writing Ichabod on the gates of the temple, the glory of the Lord has departed. The time for debate was over. The time for judgment was here, at least for the leaders, not so for the disciples, not so for the crowds. Here we see part of Christ's ministry, a significant part, in fact, warning his disciples about false teachers. The need for that same warning continues in the church today on a variety of issues. So our Lord turns to the crowds, he turns to the disciples in the outer courts of the temple and warns them about the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. 
Notice first he speaks about their legitimacy. Legitimacy. He says they sit on Moses' seat. Now, that could either be taken literally or symbolically. Either way, it means the same thing. Literally, some have suggested that in each synagogue there was a chair, perhaps much akin to a pulpit, from which the teaching took place known as the chair or the seat of Moses, the authoritative place where they would teach the word. Or symbolically, it simply means that they are in the line of the authority of Moses, that God had committed to them in synagogue and in temple the teaching of the people. Consequently, there is a legitimacy to their position. They sit in the seat of Moses. What are the disciples and the crowds to do? They are to listen and to observe. Practice and observe what they tell you. Practice and observe what they tell you. Now, we know this is not a blanket statement by our Lord. He's not telling them to observe everything they're told. He's already told them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Clearly, he's not telling them to believe their false doctrine. False teaching, by the way, is false teaching no matter where it's found. If it's from a pulpit or a street corner or a book, it's still false teaching if it's false teaching. But our Lord is saying this, where they speak the truth, where they read the word of God, where they read the law and the prophets, where they do those things and teach what is true, you are under an obligation, disciples, to follow what they say, because they sit in the seat of Moses. Obey it. Keep it. Why? Because it's not their word. It's the word of God. Same is true from this pulpit or any pulpit. You obey not because it's the preacher's word, but because it's God's word. Yet think back, what a great task it must have been for the faithful Jew, the believing Jew, to sit through synagogue and temple worship. With, with all the additional extra teaching, the oral law, the tradition of the elders, the demeaning of God's word, how hard it would have been for your average faithful Jew to have sat through that and worshipped. Yet Christ says, do it. He speaks first of their legitimacy before he speaks of their illegitimacy. Observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. He says their practice is divorced from good biblical doctrine. They've lost the essence of their faith. They've become embroiled in all these extra biblical rules, what they can touch, what they can't touch, who they can speak to, who they can't speak to. The tradition of the elders was this. Our Lord said, you lay aside the command of God and you hold to the traditions of men. They made great show of their tithing, even of their mint and their dill and their cumin, and they neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and love. They lost the heart of their religion. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And we see here this is the essence of hypocrisy. People who profess one thing and do another. That's what you call a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is without any credibility because there is a glaringly obvious disparity between what he says and what he does. Uh, we see this in the lives of, the, uh, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Under the scrutiny of Christ's ministry, they're revealed to be empty shells, spiritually bankrupt. Remember, way back in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the people were amazed at Christ's teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. They had nothing to give. They had nothing to offer by their lives. Remember elsewhere, Jesus also called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but there's nothing but the wretched stench of death on the inside. No wonder our Lord said to them, don't imitate them. Don't be like them. Because to be like them was to be deathly inside. Immediately, it's a call to us, is it not, dear friends, that we seriously examine ourselves. Are we going through the motions? I mean, what else is our Lord trying to teach his disciples? Teach them, don't go through the motions. In our context, don't be part of cultural Christianity that looks respectable on the outside, but is lawless and disobedient on the inside. Do we profess but not practice? I mean, these are the obvious questions we would be asking just from these verses. The call of Christ here is that each of us examine our heart to see whether we be of the household of faith or whether we are practicing just an empty shell of religion. And our Lord goes further in the next verses. He sets out the distinguishing marks, having called them to be wary of the scribes and Pharisees. He sets out then in verses 3 to 7 the distinguishing marks of hypocrisy, a picture of hypocrisy, three traits that he brings out of the hypocrite of the Jewish leaders. Remember, these are the Jewish spiritual leaders, the officers in the church. We're talking about the ministers, the elders, the deacons of the church of their day. He says, don't be like them. Why? Three traits. The first is this. End of verse 3. For they preach, but do not practice. We've kind of dealt with it already. Let me say a few more things about it. They preach, but they do not practice. Uh, one commentator, R.T. France, says that Jesus is telling them, follow their teaching if you must, but be sure not to follow their example. Wow. Be sure not to follow their example. What a damning indictment on a spiritual leader, well, on a leader of any kind, actually, of any authority, whether it's a parent Teacher, officer in the church, a political leader, do not follow their example. That's devastating to their message, isn't it? We all know the person who brings the message can make or break the message by their conduct. Jesus says, don't follow them. They preach, but they don't practice what they preach. France goes further. He says their behavior annuls their mosaic authority. Their conduct undermines their capacity to sit in Moses' seat while technically they have the right to sit there, as it were, and, and preach God's word. Their, their conduct and their life undermine any credibility they have in preaching that word. 
We've seen many times over how Jesus clashed with the Jews on this very issue. Heart religion, sincere and true, against merely externals. We go back to the beginning of our Lord's ministry and we see how he took issue with them over their interpretation of anger, of lust, of divorce, of oaths, retaliation, how they were to love their enemies, how they make ostentatious visible acts of piety, fasting and giving tithes, how they judged others. And friends, that's just in the Sermon on the Mount. We see our Lord take issue with them elsewhere on their practice of the Sabbath, on their association with sinners, on cleansing the sick. The list goes on. Their conduct did not match biblical norms of doctrine or conduct, but their conduct very much did match their own theology, and therein lies the problem. Their theology was bad. Their practice was bad. Our Lord says, do not imitate them. You know, the writer to the Hebrews says the very opposite. Chapter 13, verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's how it should be. That's how it should have been with the scribes and Pharisees. Friends, it's a mark of a poor or false teacher who does not practice what he preaches. It's a mark of a poor or a false Christian who does not live according to what he says he believes. Friends, we ask ourselves again, what is our doctrine? And do we live in accordance with it? The scribes and Pharisees didn't. Do we? They don't practice what they preach. The second element of their hypocrisy is mentioned in verse 4. It's more fully spoken in the rest of chapter 23 as well. Listen, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What does it mean here? Our Lord is saying these scribes and Pharisees are merciless legalists. Merciless legalists. This is kind of the heart of Jesus' contention with them, that instead of being God's agents and instruments in removing the burden of sin upon the people of God, they heap greater burdens on them instead. They bound up the people, they tied them up with heavier burdens and were not willing to remove them from them. How? By their doctrine of salvation. They were gospel deniers. Do you understand this? Legalists. They added the burdens of circumcision, of various cleanliness laws, uh, of various oral tradition laws that had no basis in Scripture. They said these things are necessary for you to be saved. You know, there are some people in the church today who say that the big problem the Jews of our Lord's time had was not legalism. It's not the doctrine of salvation. Not legalism, but nationalism. Not salvation, but ethnicity. Uh, they say that the great problem was that the Jews just hated people outside their own borders. That their doctrine of salvation was fine. And I'm thinking about these people. Have you ever read the Gospels? 
I'm talking about the new perspectives on Paul. Have you ever read the Gospels? Have you read the boast of the rich young ruler? All these things I have kept from the days of my youth? What more must I do? Have you read the boast of their tithing? Have you read the Pharisee and the tax collector? I thank you, God, I'm not like other men. And then he goes on about his good works. Friends, the Jews' problem was not nationalism, though they did have a problem with it. It was legalism. Adding works to faith, to the grace of God as the means of being justified. It's good old-fashioned legalism. Bad old-fashioned legalism, let's say that. Their method of salvation, yes, involved the grace of God. I thank you, God. I'm not like other men. The scriptures make it abundantly clear. Anyone who teaches such a thing is anathema, cursed by God. Jesus exegetes this further further in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And what do they make these people? By binding them with these extra-biblical rules? And when he becomes a proselyte, verse 15, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus' words. Children of hell. Because they combine works and grace or faith for the grounds of their justification. Do we see how devastating this is, friends? how devastating false doctrine is, how devastating it is to have a wrong view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means you can go to hell if you commingle these things, works and grace. Friends, as Reformed Christians, we ought to know better than anyone. When we received Christ... We did not receive him and us. When we rested on Christ, we did not rest upon him and ourselves. We ought to know better than anyone, because it's preached almost every week from this pulpit, morning and evening, salvation is of the Lord. And please don't make the mistake of thinking that when Pastor Rockin or I preach the commands of Scripture, you must, you should, we should work, that we're saying in any way whatsoever that that work which we do becomes something of a ground for us being saved. It's not. It's simply a product of the person who is saved. Because God has saved us from our sins, because we delight in him, everything he's done for us, what do we do? We live lives of obedience. We serve him with gladness. We obey. The the Pharisees and the scribes, they were legalists. May it never be said of us. The third element of their hypocrisy is verses 5 to 7. They seek the glory that comes from man, not the glory of God. This is old news. We've seen it before, have we not? They do all their deeds, verse 5, to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries, that's the, the little box they have on their hand and their forehead with the law in it, strapped there. They make their phylacteries broad. Why? So everyone can see how big their law is and their law keeping is. 
their fringes, perhaps their hair or their garments, long, so they can be seen. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seat in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi by others. We've seen this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus coming full circle. Don't fast so that others know you're fasting. Don't give so that others know you're giving. Don't give the greetings to the great and good of society so that you might receive them back. They love the praise of men rather than the praise which comes from God. They love the glory which comes from men rather than the glory which came from God. You see, what happens when we set our eyes on man's approval, we'll do anything to get it. And when we get it, by, nece- by necessity, we've lost the heart of religion. Because the heart of religion is this, trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might give honor to God. And in his graciousness, he gives honor and glory to us. But if you want the honor that comes from man, you'll get it. You'll receive it. And your reward is done in a moment. Faith is essential to true religion because faith looks outside of itself to God. Our great crime must be in life. May God receive all the glory. May God increase. May I decrease. Friends, the warning to us is clear. I wonder how many of us need our good works to be seen and to be visible or even to broadcast them to others. I wonder if we need others to know what we do in our service. Are we found talking about what we do, advertising about what we do? Friends, do your good works in secret. Scripture says, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's how secret your good works ought to be. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be seeking praise from men. Seek the praise and glory which comes from God. And as a closing command, encouragement, exhortation, verses 8 to 12, our Lord takes them back takes them back to the mind that he's been teaching them over and over and over again. Verse 8, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Three verses there which speak of, of, of a unified idea. Verse 8 and verse 10 are saying the same thing. That's about... Uh, receiving undue honor. And verse 9 is about giving undue honor. Receiving undue honor from men, giving undue honor to men. Verse 8 and verse 10, you're not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher. Verse 10, neither be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Uh, Clearly our Lord's not removing the, the offices of this life of parent, of teacher, of pastor, and so he's not removing those things. But he's saying, don't seek undue honor. Don't seek undue honor. Don't yearn for rank. Don't yearn for position. Uh, At least in this church, uh, that's a surefire way not to get it. Don't yearn for that which is not yours yet. Don't yearn to be rabbi, pastor, or instructor 
We have one rabbi, one great teacher. Who is it? It's the Messiah, the Christ. Would any man put himself in the place of Christ? Would anyone in their right mind seek to honor themselves in place of Christ? That's a surefire way to a brief ministry, let me tell you. To yearn for position is to deny God his honor. To yearn for that honor that comes from man is to deny Christ. To deny God and his rights, friends, is to create a vortex, a vortex of self-interest into which we get sucked deeper and deeper and deeper until we cannot get out. The church is filled with such people. He says, verse 9, um, don't give undue honor to others. I don't know how the Church of Rome deals with this, with the Holy Father. I've got no idea how they get around this. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in home, in heaven. One father. Again, I think we need to take care. Paul speaks about being a father and a mother to the, the, the Christians of the early church. He's speaking in a way which is clearly permissible. But don't give the glory that belongs to God to another man. You don't do it. Don't be a sycophant. Don't be a fan. Don't be a theological groupie, as it were, of the next big name. Don't replace God with men. What great dishonor that is to God. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They received the honor. They gave the honor. It was a mutual back-scratching exercise. And our Lord summarizes all these teachings in the final verses, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, you want to know what greatness in the kingdom of heaven is? Young men, listen to this especially. You're going to have authority in the home, probably in the church at some point as well. What is greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Humility and service. Humility and service. Humility and service. One is a heart disposition. The other is the outworking of that heart disposition. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Be a humble person. Be a servant to others. The greatest among you shall be called your servant. I think that's actually saying those who would position themselves will be brought down. Our Lord says the same, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, will be lifted up, will be seen as great. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? It's Jesus. What did he do? He washed feet and went to the cross. How's that for a paradigm of humility and service that every one of us here today is called to follow? Wash feet, not literally. Wash feet, take up your cross. Do not position yourself in the kingdom of heaven. Be quiet in your service. Be steadfast in your service, as so many of you are. Be ongoing in your service. Some of us need to start our service. Let's be clear about that as well. We need to start serving. 
rather than just being served. Others continue with your quiet, steadfast, unpublicized, unseen service, knowing that your Father in heaven sees it and rewards it. He delights in it. And nobody else needs to know what you're doing behind the scenes. You don't even need office for this kind of service. The one who exalts himself in this age will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, what we set out for, God will give us the opposite. We set out to exalt ourselves now. God will bring you down. If you set out to be a servant amongst the people of the Lord, God will elevate you at some point. What blessings these are. The great lesson, the first shall be the last, and the last shall be first. Friends, ponder this. Our Lord came not to be served, but to serve. Do we think the pattern of our faith and life should be different to our Lord's? We must think of ourselves as nothing. We must serve the Lord with gladness and let him reward and honor as he sees fit. Let's pray. Lord, we are zealous, not zealous enough, but zealous, Father in heaven, to be those who abase themselves, who humble themselves, who desire, Lord, that you would search our hearts and try us and remove from us any sinful ways. We want to serve you, Lord. Help us to serve you. Lord, whatever we need, encouragement or humbling, do unto us, Lord God, so that we, your children, are equipped and ready to serve you in the kingdom. Set our hearts aflame, Lord God, for the lowest position and give us faith to wait on you to exalt us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.